This is Location Cubed, a Weaver's Beyond the Number podcast. I'm Rob Nowak, tax partner with Weaver, and I'm joined by my partner and friend, Howard Altschuler. Howard is Weaver's partner in charge of real estate services. Howard, we were at dinner a couple of days ago, mm-hmm. and you were telling me about this race, this bicycle race that you do called Hotter Than Hell, which um, doesn't sound like much fun to me, but you folks who ride bicycles tell me this is like a, a race through the desert. It's 100 miles or something like that, right? Well, it's- In August. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and it's hotter than hell because it's what, in like 100 degree heat? Give or take. Okay. Well, first off, I do want to go on record and say it's a rally because I don't race. I'm not okay. fast enough. But yes, 100 miles. But, uh, and, which, and there's a lot of people that are going to do this. 10,000, give or take. So, um, so you all can't go across the start line at one, at one point, right? You're going to be bunched up in the beginning of the race. Right. They stage us. So normally, you know, starts at 7.05 in the morning. And you usually roll through the start line about 7.25, 7.30. Okay, 7.05 seems very specific. Mm-hmm. But um, you had a thought as to how that relates to the supply chain. Can you kind of talk us through that again? I- yeah, it, it's what we were talking about. The fact that, you know, we had everything was moving pretty well pre-COVID. And then once we got into COVID and there became restrictions, there became lockdowns, there became people, you know, hoarding things, it kind of started to gum up the supply chain. You know, traffic start, you know, traffic internationally started slowing down. Remember all the ships that were parked off the coast of Los Angeles? And it's almost like it comes to a stop, but then it takes a while to start up again. It's that accordion effect similar to the beginning of the bike ride or a marathon or something like that. And that's a lot of what we're dealing with from the standpoint of materials um, and any type of stuff. But from a real estate perspective, definitely construction materials and things like that. And I heard a statistic, and I threw this out while we were sitting there, Something like, you know, if you were to shut down the supply chain for a year, it takes more than a year to start that up. So mm-hmm. for every year of shutdown, it, it some, takes something like three to five years to get us back to full capacity from a production standpoint as well as a logistics standpoint. And that would be the case even if you had full employment and right. everybody was available to go back to work and start working immediately. Right, which is obviously not the case. Right. Now, how, does that, how do you think that relates to what we're seeing as a spike in residential home prices? And how, is that, how does that supply chain tie into some of that price increase? Well, I think there's, there's two pieces. One is just it's a demand issue. But let's talk about the, the supply chain issue to begin with. Right. Well, we want to talk about demand, but just, just supply chain. Okay. So basically, building material prices are much higher if you can get them. And so the cost of lumber is way up. I think the cost of concrete is going way up. Mm-hmm. Um, the cost of labor to install everything is going way up. And so that's obviously turning into higher home prices. Um, I can tell you I've you know, looked at a client and they had big spike in their home prices, but their margins were consistent. So it goes to show that even though the home prices are going up, it's really a matter of the builders are just really passing those costs along um, to the to the to the home buyers. Well, and and let's think talk about demand for a second. That's the second component mm-hmm. to this. So some statistics. I know you know you had mentioned that I think you were at a conference or you heard it in an event. There was what a shortage or a, a, a difference between supply and demand of something like twenty five million homes nationwide. Is that right? It was it was a podcast that I listened to and they had a demographer on and that person indicated that there was about a twenty five million house. I'm sorry, shortfall, shortfall of houses for people. Um, and the discussion was that basically it was really, it was a multifamily mm-hmm. webcast. And the discussion was that single family is not going to be able to cover that because you can't build enough houses fast enough to, to match that. So it's going to have to be more from a, a multifamily standpoint. Well, and, and I think we're seeing it bear out specifically in the Texas market. So this is some mm-hmm. data 
um, for the first time in our podcast, I have I've prepared data. Wow. Okay. So Texas Real Estate Research Center um, inventory. This is all. So this is all of Texas, not necessarily specific to Dallas. Okay. So this is all of Texas. Months of inventory fell to 1.4 months as active listings remained retracted while demand skyrockets slash stays high. That's pretty remarkable when you consider the fact that there's only a one and a half month supply of homes. Isn't the normal like six, give it, or take? It, it normally should any be where anywhere from six to eight. Now at the same time, this is also interesting and plays into what we're talking about is lumber. Lumber prices soared 61% during the same period of time. So you have, I think, both things. Right? You've got certainly the increase in materials prices, and you have a, a substantial depression in supply. Mm-hmm. Now, talk about—go ahead. Well, what I was going to say, though, is you are comparing a little bit of apples and oranges here. Because when you're talking about building materials, you're talking about new construction or renovations or things like that. You can attest to that from some of your woodworking projects. Sure. When you're dealing with the amount of supply on the market being at a low, you're dealing with existing homes. The two are correlated because a lot of people who maybe wanted to build a house can't. Yes. And so then they've got to turn around and buy something, and that's just not helping the fact. Well, and I think that is the connector between the two. It's I'm either going to buy an existing home or— I'm going to build something that doesn't yet exist. Mm-hmm. One way or another, I have to find a home. Correct. Okay. The the, the population um, trends that are also fueling the demand, I think, are something to think about as well. Um, and again, some statistics. Um, this oh, is from this is a red letter day. I, I, I know. <laughs> uh, don't get used to this. this don't worry. This may, this may not persist. Um, but this is actually from Brookings, and this ta- this is tracking growth rates in major metro areas other metro areas, and non-metro areas. So major metro, let's say Dallas, other metro are going to be Dallas and some of the surrounding mm-hmm. count- counties, non-metro areas. You know, we're going to be much further out into what you predominantly would think of as a rural or a country-type right. feel. So growth rates, that this is not actual growth, but growth rates for major, major metro areas fell for the first time in 10 years between 2020 and 2021, mm-hmm. reflecting perhaps that folks are realizing, well, I, I can work remote, I can work from anywhere. I don't need to be sitting in this office building in Dallas. I could be sitting in, in Houston. Mm-hmm. I could be sitting in Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. I could be sitting in Washington State, still work for my company in I downtown I could be sitting Dallas. in rural Oklahoma. I, I could be sitting in another country. True. Um, and then other metro areas. Okay, so we're going to think uh, of you know, is there going to be then this shift because we're not seeing the growth rate or seeing a depression in growth rates in major metro areas? Well, yeah. So growth rates in other metro areas up. Mm-hmm. Um, now, not up for as dramatically, but over the last five years, experiencing a significant increase. Non-metropolitan areas, so remember, now we're out really in, into rural areas, um, for the first time in 10 years, experienced a positive growth trend. That's that's pretty remarkable, I think. It is. And I guess the question becomes, how sustainable is that? Because everybody's going, or not everybody, but a lot of people are going, yeah, I can work from everywhere, anywhere. I've just got a new job that's 100% remote work, and that sounds exciting to me. Doesn't sound exciting to me, but to some people it does. And so I can go live in middle of Kansas, or I can go live in you know, Sherman, Texas, or something like that. But how many people are going to find that it's 
are going to, it's kind of like the whole return to work or not return to work. How many people are going to find that they're missing maybe that sense of community? It sounds really good to be out in, on the farm or to be out in the middle of nowhere and to be working remotely. But how, how long does that last when you have to drive 30 miles to get to the grocery store? Or there's no cultural activities around? Or your children are maybe don't have the same level of schooling that's available if you're living in the city. So it, I feel like to some extent there's a little bit of the pendulum swing, mm-hmm. and it's probably going to swing back. But of course, like anything, it's never going to swing back to where it was. There's always going to be this demand. There's always going to be people who are going to want to work remotely, people who are going to want to live further, whether it's by choice or whether it's by economic necessity. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that it's, it's, it's real. I'm not discounting that, but for how long? So I'm, I'm going to throw something totally out of left field at you. And, and I, first of all, I don't disagree with you. We're both social animals. Mm-hmm. We like to be in the office. We like to be around our team. We're social creatures. Right. Okay. Um, once upon a time, this, this new invention came around, which was text messaging. And I was one of the people who said, this text messaging is not going to take hold because at the end of the day, I'm going to get too frustrated typing, and I'm just going to pick up the phone, and I'm going to call Howard, and I'm not going to email Howard. I'm going to pick up the phone, and I'm just going to call Howard. And what has happened culturally and socially in this country, we have reverted largely to a text message, an email, you know, the Snapchat. Especially if you're under 30. Yes. So is this going to become a cultural phenomenon where there's a divide? There's going to be folks who remember and always knew nothing than being in an office every day and folks that did not. And there, there may end up being a societal shift in that respect. I, I'm not condoning one versus the other or endorsing one versus yeah, the other yeah. because you and I both know there are folks who will never be able to work in a remote environment because they have to go out and build bridges and roads and tables and work in factories. Um, it's going to be, I think, more service-based folks. Mm-hmm. And, and how long does that population continue to be able to remain remote? I think time will tell. And, and to your point, I think it depends on the person. I mean, I've got some relatives who um, basically, if they never have to see a person again, well, would be happy. They are your relatives. You know, fair okay, enough. Okay, you're one of those people. <laughs> Okay. That they don't want to see. Yeah, probably yeah, yeah, that's, so. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I was driving. Um, that, that, that's, that's a good point. But, and then there's others who are very social and want to be around other people. And I think what's going to happen is it's probably going to be one of those things where you're going to maybe see a change in careers. Yeah. And that people who are maybe more willing to, or more wanting to be by themselves and not have to be interactive and not have to be social gravitate towards careers that are geared towards remote working, mm-hmm. that are geared towards being at your own house or your own wherever – and do that, whereas people who are maybe more social to begin with mm-hmm. are going to find jobs where or careers where they need to be with other people. Mm-hmm. And so it, I think it's going to be, I, I hate to use the word polarizing, but I think to your point about a change is I think there may be a change, but I think it might just be bigger than just, yeah. you know, different people within the same industry, but it might be just a total career mm-hmm. choice. Right. You know, which direction do you want to go first, social or non-social? And then if you want to do that, what do you want to do? You want to do this? What do you want to do? So we, we but we're getting away from real estate. I was going to say, as we typically wind our way through these things, let's come back to real estate, and specifically, let's come back to residential housing. So th- there are a couple of other alternatives to, let's say, uh, home ownership, whether it's going to be single-family home or condo-family home ownership, mm-hmm. or I should say, condo ownership. Um, and another thing to explore is the type of construction and and how the evolution of construction will change with some of the work from home environment. But first part first. Alternatives to 
um, straight up home ownership. Um, I know you've spent a lot of time in the rental home market, and I think it's more like the build for rent as opposed mm -hmm. to the build to own type concept. So what are your thoughts around you know, the build to rent model being a remedy or a stopgap to fill in for some of the supply? And I'm talking about the home supply shortages, not material shortages, but just the home supply shortages. Well, it's a little bit of a remedy and a little bit of a cause. And so from the standpoint of the remedy, you're right, there's a lot of people out there who either, again, by economic necessity or by choice, will be renters and maybe, you know, for, for a long period of time. And so the question is, is, you know, do you want to live in an apartment, whether it's a high-rise or a garden style or a wrap mm -hmm. apartment, or do you want to have your own place, you know, with some, you know, a neighbor who's 20 feet away instead mm -hmm. of 20 inches away and a yard and a place to put your car and all that stuff. There's a cost factor to that, but it's ultimately at the end of the day, it is cheaper on a cash flow basis to have you know, to rent than it would be to buy. Longer term, maybe not so much because you're not building up any equity. It's a little, let co little less cost intensive as well because I don't have to deal with the maintenance and the repair and, you know, a lot of the exterior stuff. Although, interestingly, stuff what I've heard is do. a lot of the renters still do that. Really? Um, so, if, and if you also recall, I had listened to another podcast and someone made the comment of, who are you going to rent your house from? You know, this company that owns it or the bank that owns your mortgage. Yeah. You know, it's kind of kind of the same thing. But so I think there's there's solutions for that, for that. And again, 25 million houses, not everybody can afford to buy. Not everybody wants to buy, that'll happen. On the other side of the equation, you keep hearing about companies that are basically building for rent entire neighborhoods. Yeah. You know, 300 houses here, 400 houses there, 500 houses yeah. there. I think the st statistics are proving that the investors who are buying all these houses for build for rent or single family rental are not as much as people perceive it to be, mm -hmm. but that still does have an impact on the supply and it has an impact on the prices because you as an individual, if you're looking to buy a house and a company is looking to buy 300 houses from the same builder, yeah. You know, where, where do you stack up in that equation? Well, I can tell you one thing about the deferred maintenance. I spent um, about an hour and a half this weekend at dusk cleaning all the wasp nest off my eaves. And I can guarantee you one thing. If you own my house and you're renting to me, you'll be the one up on the 12-foot ladder doing that, <laughs> not me. Well, I'm glad you like deferred maintenance because you can come over to my house because I've got a lot of it. <laughs> we, talk, we talked about that as well. As we think about things like the supply chain. I have some clients and even some friends that have made some investments in alternative types of materials or alternative construction methods. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing? What are you hearing as some of what those alternative material sources might be? Well, I think it's going to depend on the type of property that you're building. Um, but like one of the things that I'm hearing about is mass timber. Mm -hmm. So think about wood frame construction mm -hmm. on a building that's up to 20, 30 floors. Mm -hmm. Okay, they've made a lot of advances in the mass timber to where what they're building is, or what the material is just as strong, if not stronger than steel. It's fireproof, just as much as steel would be. Has a really big added benefit in that it sucks carbon out of the atmosphere mm -hmm. instead of putting carbon into the atmosphere during its manufacture. Um, maybe not necessarily cheaper at this point, but like any changes in technology could be in the future. Um, so there's been a lot going on that. There's always the potential for steel frame construction. Um, generally, you don't do that if it's less than four or five floors. Um, and of course, with mass timber going the other direction. Yeah. But you could end up seeing where if wood prices get or lumber prices get way out of control, steel might become a 
another alternative. And then let's also not forget about the real exciting stuff on the horizon, which is the 3D printing. That's what I was going to say. I thought, I'm surprised you didn't lead with 3D printing because I love seeing some of those videos of these 3D, 3D printing these houses going yeah. on. It's pretty cool. So there's a company in Austin that's working on some prototypes for some 3D printing. Yeah. I think I read about some houses in the Netherlands that are being built yeah. on a 3D standpoint. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we always, you know, we can't forget about the modular construction. Right. The... Shipping container construction. I was going to say shipping containers, bento box type yeah. housing, prefab. Um, I'm just surprised more that that hasn't taken root Well, I think sooner. it depends where you are. Again, here in Texas, where we are, you've got wide open spaces. Yeah. You've got land is super cheap. Um, you don't have necessarily the regulations in terms of mandating the level of affordable housing. Um, but I do keep reading about things happening on the West Coast and the East Coast where you're seeing more of that because maybe you have a smaller area mm -hmm. to build on, so right. you maybe have to build in a factory and ship it. Right. Um, it's also definitely going to be cheaper, so you have the opportunity to build houses that maybe make the financial metrics work for affordable housing right. and things like that. So I think we're not seeing much of that, but I think if you look in other locations, you would. And that's about all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us on Location Cube, the Weaver Beyond the Numbers podcast. For all of our podcasts, white papers, livecasts, and more, go to weaver.com. That's weaver.com. Thank you.